Hello and welcome to the BarCast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, coming to you on a sunny Wednesday afternoon. I apologize for my prolonged silence. I Here's what happened. I... I betrayed one of the central tenets of the barcast, which was to sort of release early and often and messy, scattershot, and was preparing to do a video barcast on bond guard problems and other kinds of rule-finding games, games in which the object is to understand what the rules are of the game. And it's hard to make a video, I learned. The thing was taking me weeks. And just as I was approaching the end of it, I I left my backpack on Caltrain, which had my iPad on it, and and it was lost. Uh, I couldn't track down the Caltrain. I took an Uber to... uh, Tamian, which is the last stop of the train, but there were no trains in Tamian. Tamian itself is not sort of a terminus, even though it's the last stop. They told me that the train had likely gone to the train yard where it would sort of be inaccessible. I filed a lost and found report. Nine days went by or so, and I was just about to sit down to this bar cast and apologize and explain myself as I'm doing now. But then I thought, well, I I should just call the Caltrain people one more time just to confirm. And lo and behold, they told me that they do have my backpack. Uh, I'm I'm not declaring victory yet. I'll do so when the backpack is back in my possession. But they say they have it. I'm going to go to Lost and Found tomorrow morning. So keep your fingers crossed for me and keep your eyes out for a video barcast that may or may not ever get finished. Uh, but I certainly hope so. While while post-production for that continues, I do want to get back on audio and catch up with you. I, oh gosh, I want to try to be uh, true to those, those barcast principles that I mentioned earlier and be uh, particularly messy and personal and unfiltered today. Uh, My family lost somebody that, um, uh, and and it was, it was, it was difficult in a strange way. This person wasn't so close to me personally and yet feels sort of close, uh, uh, I'm I'm struggling to to kind of describe it while respecting the privacy of those involved, um, even though my listenership isn't so great that um, this would ever reach their ears or their loved ones' ears. But anyway, we lost this person, and and I want to share how they died uh, because because the the how is is what I've been kind of grappling with um this man was was older and and was not in great health he uh, 
had a partner and had a dog who he rescued. And this dog was very skittish. I met the dog and yeah, it's one of those dogs that's sort of always shaking a little bit and wants to be pet. But then when you reach down to pet him, he kind of recoils a little bit. And Anyway, uh, there was a fire at the apartment and um, the dog must have hidden somewhere. And so this man couldn't find his dog and uh, the dog died in the fire. And um, the man was heartbroken and kind of spent a few days just sort of lost, beating himself up over not having been able to save the dog and and was essentially brokenhearted and um, died himself a week later. Um, and uh, I just picture the man walking around in these circles wishing he, he could have done something different, replaying it in his mind, sort of losing himself to the tragedy of it. And then I imagine this dog in like a cabinet or something fearing for its life. And, uh, there's just like a tremendous sadness to the story for me. And I, I want to probe at that sadness and what else is there. And, uh, you know, I, I'll, I gotta say, I have a lot of ambivalence about forget, forget the bar cast for a second, even in my own mind, sort of converting this, event into symbolism or meaning for me, turning it into sort of like fuel. Uh, it feels kind of premature, but it, it, it was going to happen anyway, right? I mean, it's, it, it's already happening. And so I hope that you'll understand that me talking about it here is just uh, me coming to terms with what I would I've already been doing. And trying to work it out explicitly. I I tend to feel a lot of empathy for animals, maybe more so than people, which I immediately think of Tony Soprano, uh, who who we're led to sort of think is a sociopath who who doesn't feel anything for people, but but his heart breaks for animals. I don't think I'm a Tony Soprano level sociopath, but. I do sometimes struggle to feel for humans in the same way that I feel for animals. And oftentimes animal suffering is a useful gateway for me to access human suffering. And when I think about the animal terror or that animal struggling to survive, uh, there's something sort of pitiful about it or pitiable about it. And humans act that way too. This, this man whose heart was broken kind of himself, I almost picture being sort of reduced somehow to an animal state. Um, and I think about a fire closing in and I think about sort of that terror, that fear, that feeling of persecution, uh, also that feeling of inevitability. It's very nightmarish. Uh, it's, it's 
it's this looming, inevitable, oppressive disaster that you, you always knew is coming, but is terrifying all the same when it does come. And, uh, uh, well, I've been, I've been on three flights in the last week and I, I, I'm always filled with that fear when I'm on a plane. It's, it's so easy to imagine the plane exploding, um, in like a fireball. Um, I live now, uh, near the Bay Bridge and like when you walk under the Bay Bridge, you can see all these like suspension cables and it's so easy to imagine them snapping. So yeah, I, I've sort of been in that in that space for a little bit of time. And that space itself is not new to me. But I guess what's new to me to some extent is is realizing the or appreciating the uh well the Jewishness of it to some extent. And I've been thinking a lot about uh what Tola calls uh, the pain body. That's right. I read I read Eckhart Tola, um, and I'm going to read some to you now. And if if you're not familiar with him, he's he's like sort of one of these celebrity celebrity gurus. I think he's Oprah's favorite person. He's a number one best number one New York Times bestseller. I'm looking at the power of not uh, the power of now, a guide to spiritual enlightenment. And I'm just going to read this section. Uh, caveats. One is like, I myself am a little bit agnostic about Tola. He's not exactly, he doesn't speak my language um, in the same way some other gurus do. Um, so so you might hear me read him and be like, that doesn't sound like Nick. And I think that's, that's right. Um, and then the other thing that I want to caveat with is actually uh, the, the section that I'm going to read is, is pretty without context and even potentially with context might, might rub you the wrong way. Uh, there, there's almost a lack of, well, I won't say that much, but I, but look, let's, let's read it. Um, and then let's talk about it. He's going to be talking about the pain body through the lens of womanhood. And, but, but, you know, feel free to swap in, um, Jewishness, um, or not as you see fit. This section is dissolving the collective female pain body. Why is the pain body more of an obstacle for women? The pain body usually has a collective as well as a personal aspect. The personal aspect is the accumulated residue of emotional pain suffered in one's own past. The collective one is the pain accumulated in the collective human psyche over thousands of years through disease, torture, war, murder, cruelty, madness, and so on. Everyone's personal pain body also partakes of this collective pain body. There are different strands in the collective pain body. For example, certain races or countries in which extreme forms of strife and violence occur have a heavier collective pain body than others. Anyone with a strong pain body and not enough consciousness to disidentify from it will not only continuously or periodically be forced to relive their emotional pain, but may also easily become either the perpetrator or the victim of violence, depending on whether their pain body is predominantly active or passive. 
On the other hand, they may also be potentially closer to enlightenment. This potential isn't necessarily realized, of course, but if you are trapped in a nightmare, you will probably be more strongly motivated to awaken than someone who is just caught in the ups and downs of an ordinary dream. Apart from her personal pain body, every woman has her share in what could be described as the collective female pain body, unless she is fully conscious. This consists of accumulated pain suffered from women partly through male subjugation of the female, through slavery, exploitation, rape, childbirth, child loss, and so on, over thousands of years. The emotional or physical pain that for many women proceeds and coincides with the menstrual flow is the pain body in its collective aspect that awakens from its dormancy at that time, although it can be triggered at other times too. It restricts the free flow of life energy through the body, of which menstruation is a physical expression. Let's dwell on this for a moment and see how it can become an opportunity for enlightenment. Well, let's not dwell on it for a moment because I think it, it it's, while interesting, not germane to what I want to talk about now, which is just the pain body of that terror, of that feeling of persecution or prosecution. And I want to dwell for a second on, on the the confusion and the conflation between persecution and prosecution. Oftentimes we're, we're, we're marking the difference between those two words where prosecution is like a, a lawful um, and, and judicial process of bringing someone to justice while persecution is sort of a relentless chase or pursuit of someone often um, because of their beliefs or orientation or, or race or whatever. And so uh, usually when we're talking about those two words, we're seeking to disambiguate them. But uh, what if we do the opposite and talk about the ambiguity for a second? Because, of course, many persecuted people are prosecuted and many chases that are lawless are, are made lawful. And the, the, the confusion that that creates for the chaste, I think is enormous and is <clears throat> painfully felt, I guess, um, by me in, in my pain body. What I mean by that is, is I find myself oftentimes alternating between uh, a tremendous sense of having been done wrong or having been sort of unfairly hated or, or persecuted and, between that and also being guilty and sort of uh, living on stolen or borrowed time and it, it only being a matter of, of time until I'm sort of brought to justice. So um, uh, I, I, I feel at once I'm on, 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 I feel at once innocent and wrongfully accused and, and sort of guilty, profoundly guilty. Hmm. And uh, I don't know what came first, the fiction or the feeling, but uh, fortunately or unfortunately for me, there's a tremendous amount of literature that, that uh, 
that um, captures that nuance or, or plays in that space. Uh, Sarch, but the, the one that comes to mind at this moment is um, what is that book called? Is it also called The Trial? I have Kafka's Trial in front of me and I want to read from it for a second, but there's a Camus um, book. Well, let's let's look it up because um, we're here. I like this book a lot. I would recommend it. It's called The Fall. And um, it's a short one. I won't say much about it. Read that. Read that if you like. But but let's go to the, let's go to the, the granddaddy of, this kind of broken judicial system. This this master of of guilt and innocence, Kafka. If you haven't read the trial, I I encourage you to read it. I you know it's it's funny it's been it's been forever since I read it and as I was going through this process myself of course thinking about guilt I, I the trial came up in my mind but the, but then when I started flipping through the trial which I hadn't read in a long time and I have no notes for uh, I I got a surprise so I'll read I'll read just a snippet for those who who are not familiar with his style or kind of the the, the feeling that's created by it. And then I'll read the surprise part. Um, so so K, our protagonist, is on trial. I don't even remember what he did at this point. You know, the well, let's 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 read it and um, and, and analyze it from there. So K K is now um, speaking. Um, at his own trial. I have no wish to shine as an orator, said Kay, having come to this conclusion, nor could I if I wished. The examining magistrate, no doubt, is much the better speaker. It is part of his vocation. All I desire is the public ventilation of a public grievance. Listen to me. Some ten days ago I was arrested, in a manner that seems ridiculous even to myself, though that is immaterial at the moment. I was seized in bed before I get up. Perhaps it is not unlikely, considering the examining magistrate's sentiment. Perhaps they had orders to arrest some house painter who is just as innocent as I am, only they hit on me. The room next to mine was requisitioned by two coarse warders. If I had been a dangerous bandit, they could not have taken more careful precautions. These warders, moreover, were degenerate ruffians. They deafened my ears with their gabble. They tried to induce me to bribe them. They attempted to get my clothes and underclothes from me under dishonest pretexts. They asked me to give them money ostensibly to bring me some breakfast after they had brazenly eaten my own breakfast under my eyes. But that was not all. I was led into a third room to confront the inspector. It was the room of a lady whom I deeply respect, and I had to look on while this room was polluted, yes, polluted, on my account, but not by any fault of mine through the presence of these warders and this inspector. It was not easy for me to remain calm. I succeeded, however, and I asked the inspector with the utmost calm 
If he were here, he would have to substantiate that, why I had been arrested. And what was the answer of this inspector, whom I can see before me now as he lounged in a chair belonging to the lady I have mentioned, like an embodiment of crass arrogance? Gentlemen, he answered in effect nothing at all. Perhaps he really knew nothing. He had arrested me, and that was enough. But that is not all. He had brought three minor employees of my bank into the ladies' room, who amused themselves by fingering and disarranging certain photographs, the property of the lady. The presence of these employees had another object as well, of course. They were expected, like my landlady and her maid, to spread the news of my arrest, damage my public reputation, and in particular shake my position in the bank. Well, this expectation has entirely failed of its success. Even my landlady, a quite simple person, I pronounce her name in all honor, she is Frau Grubach. Even Frau Grubach has been intelligent enough to recognize that an arrest such as this is no more worth taking seriously than some wild prank committed by stray urchins at the street corners. I repeat, the whole matter has caused me nothing but some unpleasantness and passing annoyance, but might it not have had worse consequences? I mean, the when I read it out loud, I, I, I of course, am reminded of, of Kavanaugh, this like righteous indignation, this this injury and this flowery, ornate kind of bullshit language. It's, I mean, it's amazing. I'm sure Kafka scholars have written about this much more eloquently, but what's striking about Kafka is how unsympathetic he makes his protagonists, despite them being so unfairly persecuted. You don't like you, you're almost rooting against them. Uh, they're, they're cornered. They're guilty. He, he's, he's even if he's innocent, he's guilty. He's such a shithead. When Kay stopped at this point and glanced at the silent examining magistrate, he thought he could see him catching someone's eye in the audience as if giving a sign. Kay smiled and said, The examining magistrate sitting here beside me has just given one of you a secret sign, so there are some among you who take your instructions from up here. I do not know whether the sign was meant to evoke applause or hissing, and now that I have divulged the matter prematurely, I deliberately give up all hope of ever learning its real significance. It is a matter of complete indifference to me, and I publicly empower the examining magistrate to address his hired agents in so many words, instead of making secret signs to them to say at the proper moment, hiss now, or alternatively, clap now, um, and so on. You, I mean, it's, it's, comedic, it's comedic nightmare stuff. Um, so so that, was, that was what uh, I was struck by, but I'd forgotten the ending which is uh, heartbreaking, and I almost don't want to read it now uh, because, I, you know, you can't do the ending justice unless you've read the whole thing. But I will read it, just the last couple of sentences, and, of course, um, stop now if you don't want spoilers. Kay, Kay uh, needless to say, is found guilty. I forget if he's found guilty in the court or, or sort of just like... Uh, grabbed and and put down but one way or another um we have k getting carried off by two henchmen they passed through several steeply rising streets in which policemen stood or patrolled at intervals sometimes a good way off sometimes quite near one with a bushy mustache his hand on the hilt of his saber came up as of set purpose close to the not quite harmless looking group the two gentlemen halted. The policeman seemed to be already opening his mouth, but Kay forcibly pulled his companions forward. He kept looking round cautiously to see if the policemen were following, 
As soon as he had put a corner between himself and the policeman, he started to run, and his two companions, scant of breath as they were, had to run beside him. So they came quickly out of the town, which at this point merged almost without transition into the open fields. A small stone quarry, deserted and desolate, lay quite near to a still completely urban house. Here the two men came to a standstill, whether because this place had been their goal from the very beginning or because they were too exhausted to go farther. Now they loosened their hold of Kay, who stood waiting dumbly, took off the top hats and wiped the sweat from their brows with pocket handkerchiefs, meanwhile surveying the quarry. The moon shone down on everything with that simplicity and serenity which no other light possesses. After an exchange of courteous formalities regarding which of them was to take precedence in the next task, these emissaries seemed to have been given no specific assignments in the charge laid jointly upon them. One of them came up to Kay and removed his coat, his waistcoat, and finally his shirt. Kay shivered involuntarily, whereupon the men gave him a light, reassuring Pat on the back. Then he folded the clothes carefully together, as if they were likely to be used again at some time, although perhaps not immediately. Not to leave Kay standing motionless, exposed to the night breeze, which was rather chilly, he took him by the arm and walked him up down and down a little, while his partner investigated the quarry to find a suitable spot. When he had found it, he beckoned, and Kay's companion led him over there. It was a spot near the cliffside where a loose boulder was lying. The two of them laid Kay down on the ground, propped him against the boulder, and settled his head upon it. But in spite of the pains they took and all the willingness Kay showed, his posture remained contorted and unnatural-looking. So one of the men begged the other to let him dispose Kay all by himself, yet even that did not improve matters. Finally, they left Kay in a position which was not even the best of the positions they had already tried out. Then one of them opened his frock coat, and out of a sheath that hung from a belt girt around his waistcoat, waistcoat, drew a long, thin, double-edged butcher's knife, held it up, and tested the cutting edges in the moonlight. Once more, the odious courtesies began. The first handed the knife across Kay to the second, who handed it across Kay back again to the first. Kay now perceived clearly that he was supposed to seize the knife himself, as it traveled from hand to hand above him, and plunge it into his own breast. But he did not do so, he merely turned his head, which was still free to move, and gazed around him. He could not completely rise to the occasion. He could not relieve the officials of all their tasks. The responsibility for this last failure of his lay with him who had not left him the remnant of strength necessary for the deed. His glance fell on the top story of the house adjoining the quarry. With a flicker, as of a light going up, the casements of a window there suddenly flew open. A human figure faint and insubstantial at that distance and that height, leaned abruptly far forward and stretched both arms still farther. Who was it? A friend, a good man, someone who sympathized, someone who wanted to help? Was it one person only, or was it mankind? Was help at hand? Were there arguments in his favor that had been overlooked? Of course there must be. Logic is doubtless unshakable, but it cannot withstand a man who wants to go on living. Where was the judge whom he had never seen? Where was the high court to which he had never penetrated? He raised his hands and spread out all his fingers. 
but the hands of one of the partners were already at Kay's throat, while the other thrust the knife deep into his heart and turned it there twice. With failing eyes, Kay could still see the two of them immediately before him, cheek leaning against cheek, watching the final act. Like a dog, he said. It was as if the shame of it must outlive him. I was so surprised by that last line of the book. I had completely forgotten it, and and the 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 tragedy of of the animal death um, came back to me, and the, and the animal death, both the the death of an animal and the animal condition in which we die. I I don't have. Um, anything uplifting to say to to end us with um, but let me let me try to explore even murkier territory which is <laughs> ter- territory um which is what do, what do I do with these feelings of terror that I experience? And, and I forgot to mention, but in speaking of pain body, I, I was reminded that uh, I, you know I don't have, to my knowledge, direct uh, victims of the Holocaust or or, or anything like that. Um, on my Jewish side, I. I think my family was mostly already in the United States, but my great great grandfather died on the Titanic. He, his wife, and my great grandmother were on the Titanic, and um, uh, they they lived, and he died. and And I, I was reminded of that when I was thinking about not just persecution, but sort of looming Titanic-sized disaster. Ooh. Which, which I feel acutely, and is and is also the the condition of life. I mean, we all have a meteor waiting to crash into our existence and and end us. Uh, what do we do in the face of that terror? The what I usually do is I think I I look away from it, or um, avoid it. Um, or or cover it up, um, or make art out of it, and I think I think that's what a lot of us do, and I think that's sort of to some extent what humanness is is concealing our own animal condition, and so humanness in that sense is itself artifice. But. While in some cases that can feel deceiving or self-deceiving, there's also beauty to it. There's there's sort of beautiful futility to it, and uh, as bleak as the ending of the trial is. That acknowledgement of K's like a dog 
is on the one hand the tragedy of that that shame that guilt that embarrassment is all there but so too is that human beauty and sort of in mourning and acknowledging the way he's going out is to some extent i think his redemption over that over that k who we see in the courtroom of sort of this righteously indignant person um it is an imperfect reckoning to be sure but there is some reckoning happening and that's also a sort of a privilege of of being human is to is to be aware or to realize our 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 sort of animal condition and and an an irony that occurred to me as i think about my own ways of dealing with terror is the way in which i sort of scramble for human protection whether it's distraction or or art or whatever it whatever it is to not look that terror in the eye that scramble for humanity is itself animalistic in the same way a cornered animal will sort of do anything to survive so too will i do anything to not come to terms with my death and so and so that that scrambling for humanness is itself an animal act um it's it's hard to talk about this stuff uh without slipping into the maudlin or the uh too heady conceptual stuff or whatever um but uh thank you for for treading these waters with me um certainly uh if you have anything to share share it um otherwise see you next time